Well, good morning, Grace. Merry Christmas. My, all right, all right. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just looking forward to being in God's Word with you this morning. Now, about 15 years ago, about this same time of year, I found myself in a really bad place. Emotionally, spiritually, you name it. It might have actually been one of the really low moments of my spiritual journey thus far. And there were a whole avalanche of factors. I had a number of life circumstances that were not going my way. As I looked at it, just nothing was going the way I wanted it to go. I had just finished up my graduate program and I was tired and fried and, and out of gas. I was lonely. Ministry was harder than I expected it to be. And I just found myself in a bad place around the holiday season. You could say I had a tiny, shriveled little Grinch heart towards the holidays, right? Now, I, I don't mean to make light of what was happening in my life, but that actually is a really good metaphor of what was happening in my actual heart and life. My heart was cold and um, small and bitter and broken in some ways around the holiday season. And so I know some of you may have been through something like this before and Frankly speaking, some of you may be there even right now. I don't know how you walked in this morning, but I want to share what happened to me. On the back side of that Christmas season, I was sitting in the back of a church worship service in the very back row because I had to sneak in late because I was attending to some ministry responsibilities. And again, I was distracted and fried, spiritually walking wounded. And I'm sitting there and, and I don't know why I did this. To this day, I don't know what prompted it, but I just kind of spoke out in what seemed like a moment of desperation and said, God, are you listening? Would you, would you speak to me? I need, I need something. I, I need to hear from you. And then as I'm asking this and having this conversation between myself and God on the back row of a church service, uh, the song changed to that famous Christmas hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful. And as the people around me began to sing, O Come Let Us Adore Him, something happened. And if you've ever had one of these moments in your life where you feel like the Lord is, is speaking to you directly, this was one of those moments for me. I, I genuinely believe that the Holy Spirit spoke to my spirit and said, Robert, stop. Just, just stop. And come, come and, and adore me. The Lord was kind to me that day and he, he reached into my world. He reached into my mess in a unique way and he, and he spoke, he spoke. In this low, low moment in my life when everything else seemed to be broken and not worth it and nothing going my way, God interrupted my life in a really, really beautiful way. He was kind to me. And he got me through that rough patch and on the back side of that, I had some choices to make. And I made some choices about how I was gonna spend future Christmas seasons from then on out. I kind of made a vow to myself in some ways that as best I can, I was never going to let that happen again. I was never going to let the yearly kind of reminder of what, of, of God entering our world, of God entering our mess and doing something. I, I'm not going to go through the motions again as best I can, right? So help me God. And so I decided from then on out that I would, my, my Decembers would be about adoring. And so what became one of my kind of spiritual, personal spiritual disciplines and kind of yearly rhythms was I would, I would pick one verse of scripture about Jesus and just meditate on it, um, just feast my heart and my mind on it. If it was small enough, I was going to try to memorize it uh, because I just wanted to spend uh, that, this season adoring my Savior. And so what I'd like to do with you today is I'd like to take you to the section of scripture that I chose for myself at the beginning of this Christmas season. 
and uh, out of the overflow of what the Lord has done in my own heart and life, I simply want to ask you to come alongside me and let's, let's adore our Savior together this morning. The verse I picked at the beginning of the, of the month was Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be this morning. The opening verses of the book of Hebrews tell us exactly who we're looking at, exactly who we're considering, and exactly who we're celebrating this time of year. Because the baby in the manger is not just another baby. So here goes. I'm going to risk it here. I'm going to see if I got it memorized with you. You guys ready for this? All right, here we go. I did this mainly so I would memorize it, the pressure of this moment right here. Okay. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, how'd I do? Did I get it? All right. All right, well, let's do it. Let's dig into this passage together today. Let's have some fun, okay? As we do, I think it would be helpful for you to understand a few things about the book of Hebrews as a whole before we dig into this passage, because I think it's going to help you appreciate this even more. He, the book of Hebrews is a very unique book and letter written to a group of kind of newer believers with a Jewish background in the first century. They're most likely urban Christians in a very pluralistic environment, and their, their Christian commitment has begun to cost them something. It's begun to bring them some marginalization, some, some hostility, maybe even some suffering. And they're naturally wondering, is, is this worth it? Is this following Jesus thing worth it? Many of them have been ostracized from their synagogues, and so their, uh, their spiritual community, their friends, their social networks were, were gone now. And they're, again, coming to grips with all that this is and wondering, is this, is this worth it? Maybe we should just go back to the old way. It was easier. It wasn't as expensive. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to be a temptation that I've had from time to time in, in my life as well. I've been there. Following Jesus is difficult. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about all this. I have some questions that I can't seem to ever get answered. I'll just, I'll just go back to whatever system I was working before I met Jesus. And many of us will do this, and we'll even keep the name or the moniker of Christian, but the reality of our life would point to this fact that we've kind of gone back to these old ways, these broken cisterns that hold no water, like the book of Jeremiah says. And so the author of Hebrews, he loves these people, you can tell, and he wants to help and encourage them. And so he's going to speak their language. He's going to use their, their rich history and their knowledge of the Old Testament, and he's going to quote it repeatedly and give them a kind of grand picture of who Jesus was. He wants to point these new believers to the reality that Jesus was everything the Old Testament was pointing towards. He's, he's the epitome of all of these concepts from your religious tradition. And in fact, he's the better version of this. That's actually one of the big themes of the book of Hebrews is that, is that Christ is better. So don't give up. Stick with it. Go all the way. And so it's into this context, and I think a context that you and I might be able to relate to, that the author of Hebrews kicks off with this very poetic passage of Scripture in its original languages. It's really a, a majestically constructed sentence that any order would be proud of, where the writer, he's going to introduce his readers to the surpassing greatness of who Jesus Christ is. 
And for us, I think it's going to serve as a, a beautiful and magnificent reminder of what it is that we're celebrating this time of year. And so let's, let's take a look at these verses and we'll, we'll work through them together this morning. Verse 1 reads, right, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This whole passage in the, uh, the first, well, here, the first thing I, I really would like you to see is that uh, God has spoken. God has spoken, and Jesus is the final message. That's the main idea of this verse. This whole passage today, verses one through four, is actually a, a, a one giant kind of run-on, multi-clause sentence built around this one clause that God has spoken. I haven't, haven't quite gotten over that yet. Because I do think the cry of the human heart, whether it's realized or not, is to hear and to connect from our Savior. Is there something beyond this? Or am I just a bundle of chemical and physical reactions living a forgotten, meaningless, and far, and far too often short life? And how, how amazing that the God, the Creator, God Almighty, wants to communicate Himself. He wants to connect with us and let us know who He is and, and have relationship with us. He's not silent. It's, it's, it's frankly loud and clear in this passage that He has spoken to us in many times and many ways. There's this kind of glorious, grand variety and creativity in the way that God has spoken to us. He's not withdrawn and uncommunicative. And so the author of Hebrews uses this phrase, many ways. Another, another way you could translate that is very interesting is, is kind of, it's, uh, you could be translated in pieces. In pieces. He spoke in pieces, a little bit at a time, but just like a puzzle, it might be hard to put all the pieces together or understand how this piece over here connects to this piece down here in the corner. And then the passage turns on this word, but. But in these last days, but now, now. It's, it's the end of fragments. Each, each prophet had expressed a small sliver of the truth of God, but no one had been able or allowed to see the big picture, the whole thing. And the author says, from now on until the end of time, right, in these last days, there's no more fuller and final expression of God than Jesus Christ. He's spoken. God has spoken, and Jesus is his final message. Now let's, let's pause here and consider this, that we, we could never, I think, know God if he did not speak to us, if he hadn't revealed himself to us. That, that only happens by him coming down to us, not us transcending to him. And that's really, frankly, that's the, the most beautiful part maybe of the Christmas season is that God came to us, that he, he was not aloof or unresponsive. He has not been silent. He has spoken. And friends, I want you to know this, this verse, so this idea here can be an anchor for your soul. It can be a warm blanket on cold spiritual days that Jesus is the very communication of God, that he's not left us alone wondering. We don't have to worry about whether or not we can hear from God. He's spoken, and he's spoken to us through his son. And so the author of Hebrews, naturally thinking of his audience who were tempted to go back to an old way, an imperfect system, back to their fragmented messages at best about God, he continues and says, look, look, if you're, gonna, if you're, gonna, if you're wondering if this message is going to be worth it or not, if it's worthy to follow, let me, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why this message is worth listening to. 
And that's where the rest of our passages are gonna come in here this morning because the author of Hebrews is gonna run off kind of seven attributes or truths about God. The best way to think of them might be, these are seven bullet points on the resume of the son. And Jesus is the final word, he's the final message and here's, here's why. Now, as we go through these seven fairly quickly over the next few moments, I would love it if you could maybe listen to them and try not to listen to them in kind of a purely academic sense, especially if that's kind of your natural tendency like it's mine. There's a lot here in what we might call Christology and uh, it could fill giant theological textbooks and it, it certainly has, but, but rather I would love it if for the next few moments you could let your mind and your heart marvel and worship and imagine Maybe you could put yourselves in the place of these first readers who this is an introduction to a message that they need to hear about why Jesus is worth it, why he's worthy to follow, why you should press on when it's hard and why you shouldn't go back to those old ways and those old broken models. And so these are the seven things you're gonna, you're gonna need to know about this message so that you can press on. And so he, he kind of runs through them. Here's the seven qualifications of the final message. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. This parallels Paul's language in the book of Colossians that we were in a couple of weeks ago with Kevin, where it says that all things were created by him and that ultimately all things were created for him. It was created for him. It's, it's his. It's been given to him. All the, all the rights and the privileges of the kingdom of God are in his hands. And the, the implication for us is that if we can then trust God to, or trust Jesus to deliver on all the promises of the kingdom, because in the end, it's his, he's the heir, he's, he's holding the bag, it's been, it's been written into the will. The son can make good on his word because in the end, he, he owns it all. Not only has he been appointed heir of all things, but through Jesus, God created the world. That's the next phrase there, through whom also he created the world. The son was the father's agent in the creation of the entire universe. Before the beginning of time, the son was eternal. This mirrors what the Apostle John says in, his, in the first part of his gospel where he says, through him all things were made that were made. Not only is he the heir of all things and through whom the entire universe was created, but he's also, he's, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. That, that Greek word for radiance there, it's the only time this word's used in the New Testament. And it's actually, it kind of means this kind of brightness or brilliance from a source of light, this, this intense brightness. One way to think about it might be when you, when you look at a really bright light, let's say you look at the sun, for instance, and kids, I don't recommend that, okay? But you'll get the point. If you, if you look towards the sun, the brightness or the, the radiance of that light and the actual source of that light are too closely associated for you to even distinguish them. You can't just look at one, you only see both. It's, it's so powerful. The word here is it really kind of means shining forth that Jesus Christ is literally shining forth to the world the very character and attributes and nature of God. That's why Jesus claims that he's the light of the world. And, and last week with Jeremiah, if you were here, we, we talked about this idea that there is a lot of darkness out there and there's a lot of darkness in here that needs a radiant, radiant light. 
And the readers of Hebrews also would have been very familiar with this concept of the glory of God from their Old Testament. They would have remembered their history and the the story of how uh, their forefathers followed the pillar or the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It was this visible sign of God's continuing presence with them. In much the same way, Jesus is a visible sign of God's presence with us. So not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, but he's also also the exact imprint of the nature of God. Next phrase says, he's the exact imprint of his nature. Some of your translations may say representation there instead of imprint, but he's exact. It's this Greek word, actually it's the word character. And the origins of that word used to, it was kind of a, an inch, like an instrument that was used for engraving. And then later it became kind of this, uh, how coins were pressed. They were pressed with an image. Or how when you put a, a seal into wax, it has the, the same shape of it. The idea here is that the sun provides a true and trustworthy and exact picture of the person of the father. He's, he's literally God's stamp. He's literally God's stamp. Now, when I thought about this phrase, it it made me think of a kind of an inside joke we have in my family. Now, in our house, my wife will often say something like this when she sees one of our children doing something great, but more, more than likely, like, not so great. We'll say something like, well, he is your son, right? Or, well, you know, she's your daughter, right? And most of the time, this is in reference to some kind of character or behavior that's being displayed. And one of us or both of us realizes like, yeah, yeah, we know where they got that from, okay? And with my son, Lauren would joke, especially in his early years, that my son is about 92% me. The way he acts, the way he thinks about the world, the way he hates losing and his competitive spirit. And I'll wonder, I'll, I'll look at him and be like, why is he acting that way? And because Lauren's experienced me for so many years, she'll lean over and most of the time kindly say, well, you know he's acting like you, right? Now, I tend to think that 92% me is pretty awesome, okay? <laughs> but here's the thing, I don't know because I can't even be trusted to be humble in my own sermon illustrations, okay? All right, but here's the thing, my, my son, he looks like me. Here's the proof. These are baby pictures of us side by side. Okay, he looks like me. Not only does he look like me, but his character and his traits and his behavior, they often resemble me as well. But here's the thing, he's, he's not me. He's not me. Even inside of our family, if we joke about him being 92% me, the reality is, is there are a bunch of ways that he is much, much different than me. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. The Bible says he's, he's exact. He's, he's 100% representation of the Father, authentic, exact, and perfect. And so if you wonder what God is like, he's like Jesus. And if you wonder what Jesus is like, he's exactly like the Father. He uh, talks like him. He looks like him. He reflects the Father's ideas. He does the kinds of things the Father does. If you've met the Son, and you've really met the Father, Not only is uh, this final word, this final message from God, the exact imprint of the nature of God, but Jesus also upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Can you, can you imagine with me this for a while? That right now, Jesus Christ is upholding the universe. He's sustaining it all. It's this idea that there is a continual kind of organization and carrying forward of the created order to its desired end. The verb there is actually used in a, in a present tense because it, it means to imply that it's an ongoing and continuous action, that everything right now is being sustained by Jesus Christ. Nothing is excluded. He's moving it all towards his determined and desired end. It, it makes me wonder sometimes what would, what would happen if the word of his sustaining or upholding power was removed. What would happen if Christ relinquished that? Like if you think the world is, is messy and chaotic and frantic and disheveled and random now, imagine if the word of his sustaining power was removed. This, this fantastically precise universe that is so delicately balanced down to the millimeter sometimes. And he sustains it all. And he's seeing it through to the end. No, this is, this is not just another prophet, the author of Hebrews would say. This is not just another ordinary message. This is, this is the son. This is the final message. Not only is he the one who sustains all of creation by the word of his power, but Jesus made purification for sins. The next phrase there, after making purification for sins, this, this savior, this son, this, this message, he, he made it possible for your grievances against God to be purified and gone forever by becoming the sacrifice himself. The message of our world is so often, um, that's your problem, you fix it. And this, this message, this savior says, that's your problem and, and I'll fix it. Something had to be done about sin and he did it and it leads to this kind of forgiveness that's permanent and leads to the very presence of God. He made purification for sins. And then finally, maybe even perhaps the most important bullet point, I think, on this list of the resume of the son, especially for you and I and our ability to have any kind of confidence whatsoever in our salvation, is that not only did he make purification for sins, but after he did, he sat down. He sat down. What an amazing thought that the work, the work is completed. The author of Hebrews here is, is no doubt referencing uh, the priestly work in the temple that would have been very familiar to these Jewish believers. They would have been very familiar with the reality that a priest doesn't get to take a break in the temple. The wheels of sacrifice are always spinning, always going. There's no time for a break. The work's never really done. The shifts of sacrifice have to roll on over and over and over again. Tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day because the work's never really done. And the author of Hebrews says, look, no, 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 this final message, this one who made purification for sins, he, he did it and then he sat down. He's done. It's the, work, the work's finished. It's complete and fulfilled. There's no repetition needed for this saving act. No other, no other sacrifice will ever be necessary. And for us, it has some really big implications because for us, there's no more reason now to struggle through self-effort or some kind of ritual system wondering if your sins have been covered. For those who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's done. The king in the final message has sat down. There's, there's nothing left to do on the to-do list for purification of sins. 
And so the author of Hebrews in these first few verses says, look, let me tell you about this final and full message from God. Here's the resume. This son, this message, he's the heir of all things through whom the world was created. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and he's made purification for sins and then he, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so naturally, uh, the author of Hebrews concludes this passage with this final thought, right? The, the natural conclusion to this line of thinking that I've just walked you through is that this message, this word, this son is far superior to any other kind of message or word or person. Verse four, the last verse ends like this. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author wraps up his introduction to this book by using a word that he's going to use 12 more times throughout the the course of this book. This word superior, sometimes translated better. He's better or superior in in every way because of the name he has. And the name he has is his son. It's a superior name. This final message was his son and his, his name and his attributes and his character and the work he did and accomplished means he's superior in every, every way. And so men and women of grace, this begs the question, so what, right? What, what are we supposed to do about this? If, if, if the baby in the manger is all of these things, then what impact should that have on my life? How, how do I apply this? What can I really do? What actions might I be able to take in light of what this passage of scripture says? And I think there are two potential applications that I, I came up with, but I realize there may be others. There, there may be something even in the last half hour that the Lord has placed on your heart in some way to apply. And if he has, I encourage you to kind of follow through with that. But if you're, if you're wondering, okay, how do, I, how do I apply this or how do I respond to this? I've got a couple of suggestions for you this morning. The first application is this, because, because God has spoken, because he's spoken, let's listen. Because he's spoken, Let's listen. Friends, you, you have a message from the God of the universe in your inbox. And you don't, you don't ignore that kind of message. No one leaves an email unread when the, when the sender line says God of the universe. So let's, let's listen to him. And I know this is, this is kind of becoming harder and harder to listen above the, the kind of noise in our world. And I think it's becoming even more difficult in our very individualistic and I know what's best for me kind of world that we live in. It's natural to ask, well, shouldn't God listen to me? Shouldn't he adjust to me? I mean, I I know what's good for me. I know my truth. I know my experiences. Shouldn't he adjust to me? I mean, I I know my needs and my way of thinking. I know what I think's best. I've got this thing kind of figured out. Shouldn't he adjust to me? I want to tell you today that that's the beauty of the Christmas season, friends, is that he, he did adjust to you. That's the beauty of the incarnation is he, he came to us in this kind of undeserved and un, unmerited way. God adjusted himself to us in order to have a relationship with us. And now he asked us to surrender to him, to obey, to listen to become his disciples, to become more and more like him in all of our lives. And he's, he's not asking us to do anything close to what he's already done on our behalf and for us. 
and he promises that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and he promises that his way is a way that leads to abundant or more joyful life. That's his promise. And he's this final message. He's all seven of the things the author of Hebrews describes, and so let's, let's listen. Let's listen to him. Let's have ears to hear, and, and we've got to be careful not to do the kind of listening that I sometimes do in my home that I get in trouble for, where I'm, I'm there and I'm listening, and I'm uh-huh, 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 but I'm not really listening. I'm, I'm somewhere else. I'm certainly not comprehending, and I'm certainly not going to take what I've, what I've heard and actually do something about it. No, we've got, we've got to do the kind of listening that naturally leads to action, to obedience, to, to adjusting our lives to the one who came and adjusted to us first. And so God has spoken. Let's listen. And then the second application, I think, during this season is it, it could we together, um, could, you, could you marvel and just worship at the baby in the manger? The answer for your weary soul and, and I know that many of us are weary, especially as we've come out of the last couple of years. The answer for your weary souls, friends, is to adore him. To let your heart run wild with gratitude at all that Christmas represents. And you may have to prompt yourself in some ways, like I have, and, encourage you, and I encourage you to do that. Here are maybe just a few options you could use to kind of prompt your heart over the next few days as we celebrate this time of year. Maybe you could. You could find a thought or a passage about the Savior and just, just marinate yourself in it. Have it be the thing you think about. You might, if you're more musically inclined, you might want to find some music that stirs your heart and your affections for God. And maybe you just spend five or 15 or 50 minutes and just get lost in it. You could start or end your day with some kind of reminder about who Jesus is. Maybe you could write it up on your mirror in your bathroom so it's the first thing you see and maybe the last thing you see each day. You could continue to read uh, the Christmas devotional that we're going through as a church together. If you're behind or you haven't even started, that's fine. Just pick up right where we are and join us. You can take my thing. Join me in Hebrews 1 if you want. In a couple of weeks, we can meet in the lobby and we can quiz each other about whether we have it memorized or not. Okay. But when you, when you look at this Savior, when you look at this message from God, this full and final message from him, the natural and proper response is to marvel and to worship and to celebrate and to exclaim, maybe like the Apostle Thomas did when he saw his resurrected Savior, just my Lord and my God. Let me wrap it up and conclude this way. Men and women of grace, are you still wondering if God speaks? Are you in a place maybe like I was 15-ish years ago, wrung out, worn out, beaten up, desperate, bitter, spiritually dry, grasping at straws, pleading with God to do or to say something, maybe wondering in the back of your mind if God is silent or unresponsive to your plight or the plight of humanity in general. The author of Hebrews would say to you and I today, he's spoken. He's, he's already done it. He's spoken definitively and finally through his son. And we're not alone. We're not without hope because this word, this final message, oh, it's, it's some kind of news. And it's no longer fragmentary or incomplete or a shadow of the real thing. No more pieces. It's, it's the full message. And this message, this final and complete word from God, it's, it's his son. 
and he is the heir of all things. He's, he's who the universe was created through. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And right now, he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. And friends, he's, he's made a way for sins to be purified. And when he did, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he's better. Oh, friends, he is, he is so much better or superior in every possible and imaginable way to whatever system you're working or attempting to do in order to achieve some connection with God. And so, because all of this, let's listen. God has spoken to us through his son, and so let's listen. And let's, let's listen in a way that leads us to action and lining ourselves up with what he's said to be right and real and true. And then let's marvel. Let's, let's come together during these next few weeks and let's, let's adore him together. Let's, let's worship him in this season in maybe fresh and new ways. Let's work hard to put our hearts in the right pathways for us to be able to marvel and worship at him. Because this, this baby in the manger is God's final and definitive message to all of humanity and to you and I. All right, let me pray for us. God, we come before you just, just amazed, God. We marvel, we stand in awe that, of what we celebrate this time of year, your son, our final message, God, sent to us from a God who speaks and who has entered our world and entered our mess. And God, we are so incredibly grateful for this baby in a manger and all that he represents for us. God, would you, would you turn our hearts towards you this week and the next week and the next one after that? Help us to listen and to act accordingly because of the reality of who this final message was, your, your son. And it's in his name we pray, amen.